Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 38, and then we'll be reading down through 48. If you don't have a Bible, there's a paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. When you get to Matthew 5, 38, look up at me and say, nothing but the blood. All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond, thanks be to God. Beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing them? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and once again, we're glad that you're here today. Hopefully, you have your Bible in front of you, and um, as you heard the text read, um, it is a very provocative passage that we're in today. Um, But before we get going, um, the Scriptures teach us in Romans chapter 12 to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And one of the beautiful things about living in Popper Bluff and being in Butler County is that it's a small community and that you um, know people and that your children grow up with people and that um, everybody knows everybody. And um, many of you have heard, many of you maybe not have heard, but um, last night um, there was a wreck that caused some fatalities involving four students that were a part of the Popper Bluff School District. Um, Three of them uh, was a fatality and one is in critical condition right now. And so um, what I want us to do is I don't know how we as the church could gather today and not do what the scriptures teach us to do, which is to weep with those who weep. And so I just want to take a moment and pray, and um, I want to start off in silence, and I want you to pray, because many of you have children and grandchildren, and many of you may know these families. And so let's bow our heads in a moment of silence and prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you with heavy hearts today. Many of us um, knowing the people and family that are affected by this tragedy, and many of us not, but it is close to home. Whenever there is someone of a young age who passes away, there's something inside the human heart that recognizes that um, this is wrong and that this shouldn't be. And God, we recognize in this moment um, what your word says in James, that our life is but a mist and a vapor, that it is here and it appears and then it is gone. So God, first and foremost, we come and we intercede upon behalf of these family members who may in this moment not even know how to pray, but may we as the church of Jesus Christ intercede with mercy and grace upon their behalf. God, we pray that if there's any means that we as a church could accommodate them and love them, that we would do that. But first and foremost, right now, we know that we pray to a God that hears our prayers. 
and to a God who knows what suffering is and to a God who hates death. But our hope in this moment is knowing that the grave is empty and that the throne is occupied and that death does not have the final answer. But Jesus Christ holds the keys to death and hell in his hands. And that is the only hope that we can have. God, we pray that this tragedy would become something beautiful and that there would be students to come to know Jesus Christ through something like this when they would recognize that they, their life is not immortal. And God, we pray for the family again and we beseech them on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. And the body of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Thank you for allowing us to do that. Um, we are in our sermon series entitled The Sermon on the Mount and we're looking at Jesus' words As to what he says, what does it look like when the kingdom of God breaks through and is here on earth? Jesus literally said the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. It is now. And what does that look like? What does it look like when Jesus is king and when his followers submit to him and live their life with Jesus Christ as their ruler and as their king? And we've walked through and we've seen these things. And there's been a lot of provocative things that Jesus has said about lust, about divorce, about all types of things. But today, I believe in 2017, and I believe for us as Western Americans, the words that Jesus has for us today will probably be the most provocative literally out of the series. Um, Do you remember this man, Napoleon Bonaparte, when you were in history class trying not to fall asleep? Um, Napoleon Bonaparte was the French um, general who was um, literally setting up the French empire. He was known as being a ruthless, ruthless man. And back then, how you set up your empires is you had more horses and more swords and more guns. And so when you drove into the village, if they said, you know what, we don't want to be French, then you were dead. And then you would bow your knee and say, okay, you're going to set up your regime here. But what a lot of people don't know about Napoleon Bonaparte is that he was a very conflicted man and very conflicted about the person of Jesus Christ. Um, It was said that everywhere that he traveled to, whatever emperor, whatever king, or whatever elder of the village that he was uh, going to, that he would often ask the question, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And Napoleon Bonaparte, listen, said this about his own empire and looking back upon history, he said these words, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force and upon violence. But this man, Jesus Christ, founded his empire upon love. And at this very hour, millions of men across the world would die for him. That's interesting, right? That a man who was conflicted about Jesus Christ, a man who set up his own empire, a man who looked back upon history and said, look at all of these great Roman empires, all of these great empires and great societies that we know, they all founded it upon force and upon violence. But then there's this Middle Eastern man who comes along and says the opposite. And what Napoleon Bonaparte, I think, was saying is, when I die, my empire is probably going to die. But at this very hour, millions around the world still worship Jesus as king. Now, 
I need to be clear. This week and last week, I have studied, I have read, I have read across the spectrum. I have done as much as I could upon your behalf as being your pastor and researching this. And here's my conclusion today. Um, I will not solve the, te- uh, the tension that is in this text. I just won't, okay? So today, I can't put it in a nice box for you and a little bow and tie it up and you walk out and go, oh, pastor solved all of our problems today. That's great. Oh, that's going to be... I'm not going to do that today. Um, D.A. Carson says these words, no matter how much we wish to follow Jesus seriously, we discover sooner or later that seriously following Jesus entails hard thinking about what he said and what he did not say. We may not come to perfect harmony on all points, but we must agree that absolutizing any text without due respect for the context and flow of the argument, as well as for other things Jesus says elsewhere, is bound to lead in distortion and misrepresentation of what Jesus means. And I believe that's very true of this text today. There are people in this camp who absolutize um, something in this text, and they make it an extreme. And there's people in this camp who try to wiggle their way out of that. But here at Westside, what we always like to say is, we love to live in the tension. And we want the Bible to be our ultimate God. So what we're going to do today is as we look at these commands that Jesus is interpreting from the laws, we'll look at the background, we'll look at the blueprint, and then we'll look at the basis for what he's saying. So first and foremost, the background. Look at Jesus' words there in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So we know that Jesus is reinterpreting the old law. Now here's what I need you to do. God forbid we come to church and actually use our Bible and have to turn to other passages. That would be crazy, right? So here's what I need you to do. I need you to turn to Exodus chapter 21 in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. When you go golfing, you take your golf clubs. When you go fishing, you take a fishing pole. When you come to church, you bring your Bible, okay? All right? So Exodus chapter 21, and I want you to see these words in the Bible, okay? So you know that I'm not doing anything, but here it is. Exodus chapter 21, and look at verse 1. God is saying this to Moses. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Here's what he's doing. God has just used Charlton Heston to get the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember that, right? Right? So what's God doing? He's setting up a new society. Listen, you've got to understand, this is ancient, ancient times, okay? No iPhones back then, no facial recognition software, all right? So God has to institute laws and regulation for justice in this society. That's what the basis of Exodus chapter 21 is. Now look at verse 22, okay? When men strive together, if there are two men that are fighting, basically, and hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, but there is no harm... The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay, look at this word, as the judges determine. So listen, this is a society rule. 
if there's two guys brawling and a pregnant woman is standing by, right? Somebody gets all Conor McGregor, hits the woman, forces labor, and if this baby comes out and is fine, and then he gives a, a, a law and stipulation later on, but if this baby dies due to premature labor, this is society regulations, okay? Right? We don't need to make the Bible something that it's not. But now look at verse 23. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The reason why God is giving Moses these rules and regulations is for two reasons, and it's why we have laws in our society, is to not only protect the victim, but also to protect the person who's committed the crime as well, right? We're not barbarians, basically, is what, G- is, is what God is setting up with Moses. But the key phrase is, he shall pay, look in verse 22 again, he shall pay as the judges determine. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bible. As the judges determine. Here's first and foremost the background of what Jesus is challenging. The Pharisees and the scribes took something that Moses gave to the judges and to the legislation of Israel. And what the Pharisees and scribes did is said, you know what? We'll use those laws and regulations in our our own personal day-to-day relationships. So we will enforce the full law upon somebody that maybe um, has offended us. Because actually, look at the text again, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Slaps. Now think about this. All right? Like, my goals during the day, like, I love people that work out. That's awesome. That's great. You can eat Wheaties and eat green stuff, but you're still going to die. Okay? Right? That's fine, right? But my goal in the day is to not lift something that's heavy and not to get hit in the face by something. Okay? Right? Those are pretty admirable goals that I have during the day. Now, people, people make this first and foremost about nonviolence, which we'll get to in just a minute. Okay? Everybody gets it today. Welcome to Westside. All right? All right? But when you think about a fight... Who comes in and slaps the guy first, right? My money's not on that guy, okay, right? In the ancient Middle East, if you slap someone with a backhand, what Jesus is saying with the cheek, it was the ultimate sign of disrespect. A father could literally disown his son in public by giving him the backhand and striking him on his face and disowning him. First and foremost, listen, we have to know the background of this, right? What Jesus is saying is this, that kingdom relationships are built on reconciliation, not retaliation. you got to start there first, okay? Now, we're going to get some stuff that will be highly offensive to everybody else in the room, okay? But you got to start there. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, listen, listen. In your personal relationships... When somebody harms you or offends you or sins against you, here's what you don't do in the kingdom of God. You don't go, oh, oh, I got something for you, brother, right? You're going to slander my business? Oh, 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 I got something coming for you, right? Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works in my kingdom. Kingdom relationships are built on reconciling one another to each other. They're not built on retaliation. That's first and foremost what's there in the text. 
but then we have to read it again. And there is an issue there. Because go back to the Beatitudes. Look at what Jesus says right there on the other page in your Bible. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There's a tension here in the text because there is an attribute of violence that Jesus is speaking about. So what are we supposed to do? Because Jesus says, do not resist the one that is evil. And first and foremost, the word resist can also mean sue. So like, don't, don't, don't retaliate and give back on that. But what do we do in a broken world? And listen to God's sovereignty as we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We are barely two weeks out of the tragedy that happened in Las Vegas. And I mean, in God's sovereignty, he has us in the Sermon on the Mount now, West Side that we would be the people in the kingdom of God in Popper Bluff as it is in heaven. So what's the blueprint? How are we supposed to live, Jesus? There's a tension here. You're telling me to do something that is innately against my human condition, and I know that what you're saying is good. I don't think the Sermon on the Mount is a suggestion. I don't think it's a fortune cookie. I don't think that we can go, oh, man, I love this. Forgive others, don't judge. Oh, love that. Judge not, least you be judged. Get off my Facebook status, uh, right? Love that stuff. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. That's the highlight of the text, not turn the other cheek. Pray for those that persecute you. There's only one meaning for persecution, which is violence. Persecution is not somebody commenting on your Facebook status when you post a Bible verse and they say, well, I don't like you and I don't like God. And you go to your coworker and go, oh, it's just bad damn being persecuted for Jesus. No, that's not persecution. Persecution is when your life, your physical life is in threat because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's persecution. So how do we live in light of this? What is the blueprint are you ready for this? This is just Jesus' words, okay? The first thing that we should live and do is this. Give graciously. Give graciously. Do you see the action words in the text? But I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone would force you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who... Do you see all of the action verbs that are taking place here? And there's something all about the context of this. But what I love about if anyone forces you to go a mile, go the extra mile, that's where that phrase comes from. Did you know in Jesus' day they were under Roman oppression? A Roman soldier at any time in Jerusalem or wherever the Roman Empire was could force a citizen to carry their armor wherever they told them to go. And this is the audacity that Jesus says, that when a Roman soldier comes up to you and says, carry my sword and carry my shield, you carry it to that mile and you ask him, hey, do you need to go another one because I'll carry it for you? How you feeling? How you feeling? Awkward? Is it still Jesus is my homeboy today, right? You know what I'm saying? And listen, this is my conviction, and I, and I truly believe this, that nonviolence is the greatest resistance against evil. I know where I stand. I know where I'm preaching in Butler County, one of the top givers into the NRA, and I'll get into all this in just a minute, okay? 
But when I look at the gospel, what's the greatest evil? What's the greatest evil? Greatest evil is not racism, it's not health care, it's not any of that. The greatest evil is sin. That is the greatest evil. It is cosmic treason against a God who created the universe and the breath that is in your lungs is a gift of God and we use that very breath to blaspheme him. That is the greatest evil. And what was God's solution to that? Give them what they deserve, mount up the troops, sharpen the sword because we're coming down there and I'm sick and tired of those people and I'm going to give it to them and they don't understand and this is this country and they don't do that he didn't but when he was being nailed to a cross father forgive them for they know not what they do do you know what trumped the greatest act of violence and the greatest act of evil in the world was the greatest act of nonviolence? And now I know where the tension's at. But I no more have seen this displayed in one of my own personal heroes in my life. I read seven of his sermons that he preached on this text. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. During the civil rights movement and in the height of the civil rights movement when racism was just rampant and it's ridiculous. I can't even understand the concept of this. Before they would go and sit in diners and before they would go and peacefully march, they would read the Sermon on the Mount from start to finish and pray. Martin Luther King preached a sermon in Montgomery, Alabama, November 17, 1957, the night before he was in a jail cell. He was beaten so severely that the doctor told him not to preach that following Sunday. While he was in the jail cell, he wrote a sermon entitled, Love Your Enemies. And he was getting huge backlash from his own African-American community saying, we cannot live this way, this will not win, because they wanted to return violence with violence and hate with hate. And he says these words on November 17th, 1957. For you see in a real sense, if we return hate for hate, Violence for violence and all of that, it just ends up destroying everybody. And nobody wins in the long run. And it is the strong man who stands up in the midst of violence and refuses to return it. It is the strong man, not the weak man, who stands up in the midst of hate and returns love. Hate begats hate. Force begats force. Violence begats violence. Toughness begats toughness. And in all of this descending spiral, ending in a destruction for everybody, and nobody wins. Now, I know what you're doing. So, Jason, what you're telling me is that somebody breaks in my house, and I'm supposed to lay over and be a doormat? That's just what you thought, right? It's what you've been thinking. Had conversation all week long, and that's the first thing that anybody tells me. And I want to challenge that thought today. I want to challenge it by a man by the name of Alexander McLaren, and he says these words. Would that professing Christians would try more to purge their own hearts and bring this soul precept into their daily lives. Instead, instead of discussing whether there are cases in which it does not apply, there are great tracks in the lives of all of us to which it should not apply and is not applied. And we had better seek to bring these under its dominion first, and then it will be time enough to debate as to whether any circumstances are outside its domain or not. 
My question to you is, why is your first response of creating a hypothetical situation about somebody breaking into your house and using violence and doing all of that, why is that your first thought rather than making violence against the violence in your own heart? Do you know what I think why we love about conspiracy theories and Vegas and shooter on a grassy knoll and all this and all that? Because it's a lot easier to get distracted about a fantasy and a conspiracy theory than to realize the very fact that the evil that is in those person's heart is not exempt from being in my own. Here's all I'm simply asking. Why is our first response to stand to our feet with our guns and demand our rights rather than to grab our Bibles and drop to our knees and ask for Christ's mercy? That's all I'm asking. Let's start there first. There first. Let us come to Calvary with bended knee first and go, God, there is a tension here. And I understand 1 Timothy says that a man should provide for his household because if he does not, then he is worse than an unbeliever. I'm not saying don't protect your family. I'm not saying any of those things. But I'm saying before we go out there and make all of these ethereal arguments and go, well, what if, what if this, and what if this? I'm just simply asking you, where are you not applying this in your life right now? That's where I want to start first. Then we can get into other conversations. Because what would it look like in a world where people gave generously? Like people wouldn't have to steal because my heart would break that they live such a life that they have to steal. So then I would love them as myself and try to find a new lifestyle for them. Give generously. And then the second one is this, love unconditionally. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus could have used a lot of words here, a lot of words. The English language is pretty poor sometimes because we say like, man, I love Taco Bell. Man, I love my dog. Man, I love my wife. I hope you don't say it in that order, guys. That's not good for you, okay? Don't, don't do that. We just say love, you know, throw it around. And there's really three words for love in in the Greek, which is what Jesus is speaking. Jesus uses the word agape. It's like a super, supernatural love. It's a love that transcends the circumstance. And listen, it's a love that transcends the person. It looks beyond the person. It looks beyond the circumstance. It's that type of love. And in that same sermon, I'm going to read a portion of this from Dr. King. And I just want you to get ready, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, we're about to go to church, okay? We're about to go to church. This is what he reads on November 17th, 1957. Because a lot of people think that love is like we're going to sit around and make little crowns with little daisies and fairies and sing kumbaya around the fire and not actively pursue justice. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. Listen to these words. We cannot in all good consciousness obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much of a moral obligation as cooperation with good. And so put us in jail and we will go in with humble smiles on our faces still loving you. 
bomb our homes and threaten our children and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit morally, culturally, and otherwise for interrogation and we will still love you. And send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead and we will still love you. But be assured, oh be assured brothers and sisters that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. But not only will we win the freedom for ourselves, but we will so appeal to the heart and to the conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory, it will be a double victory. This seems to be the only answer and the only way to make our nation a new nation and our world a new world because love is the absolute power. And that is the meaning of love. As we watch Jesus the Christ and see him as he stares out standing amid the infrastructure and fascinating military machinery of the Roman Empire, it seems that we can hear him saying, I will not use these methods. I will just take the ammunition of love and put on the breastplate of righteousness and the whole armor of God, and I'll just start marching. And this is what he did. And through this approach, he was able to shake the hinges from the gates of the Roman Empire. And through his life, he was able to transform and split history into A.D. and B.C. So today, we can hear the glad echo of heaven ringing. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wane and wax no more. And this is the very meaning of the gospel. It is not just a meaningless drama taking place on the stage of history, but it is a telescope through which we look out of the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power drunk generation, a generation growing in nuclear and atomic weapons, saying that love is the only way. Yes, brothers and sisters, love is the only answers. And so this morning, as I look into your eyes, I lift my eyes beyond you, and I look into the eyes of the peoples of the world, and I love you, and I would rather die than hate you. And I believe that my spirit can meet your spirit and your spirit through the process can meet with my spirit and through the collision of spirits, the kingdom of God would finally emerge. And there is still a voice today saying and crying out, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you. And only through this message will you realize that you are enrolled into the university of eternal life. That's church, brother. That's church right there. And when I look back and I see Jesus' words holding true in this promise, love is the only power that can transform hate. Because I see it as the essence of the gospel that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. I just think when those people become human beings created in the image of God to you, things change. And then when you understood that you were an enemy of God and that Jesus met you with open arms so wide that they were stretched and dislocated upon a Roman tree 
I believe that that type of supernatural love changes things. We give graciously. We love unconditionally. But what's the source for this? We have to understand that biblical love is not passive. It is active. I'm not saying Christians are doormats. I'm not saying Christians are people that get walked over. I'm saying that Christians are the people who have the voice for people who don't have a voice. I'm saying Christians are the one who stands up for the rights of the unborn and we're pro-life from the womb to the tomb for all of those areas and all of those things. That Christians are the ones who take responsibilities for the widows and for the orphans and for the sin of racism that is still rampant today. I am telling you that the love of Jesus Christ is so powerful that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That's the gospel I believe. That's the gospel that the church of Jesus Christ is founded upon. And look back upon history, dear friends. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because if you try to kill us and you try to poverty-stricken us, we multiply like rabbits in this world, man. We just continually multiply and continually grow. And a martyrdom, and a martyr happens, and then a church is birthed, and then 10,000, and then there's more. And our brothers and sisters in China and over in North Korea that are being oppressed have to hide their Bibles, and they only have certain pages of it. And they're multiplying, and they're spreading. And here we are, cozy today, fighting for our rights, rather than asking the question. Where's the love of Christ not in my life? How do we do this? The last thing he tells us is pray relentlessly. Give generously, love unconditionally, and pray relentlessly. But I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. (laughs) I don't think Jesus is creating some unreal utopia here. I believe that he's speaking truth. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God and every word that he said was true? Amen? I don't think that it's a suggestion. Romans chapter 12 says that when an enemy does harm to you, feed them and love them and pray for them because as you do so, you will heap burning coals on their head. And the question that's in the air is this, Jason, when does justice prevail? When do all the wrongs become right? And Paul ends in Romans 12 and says, Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And this is our great hope as Christians. And as the early church prayed, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, that when our enemies rise up against us, that we pray for their souls and that we pray that they would come to know the love of Jesus Christ because only that love can transform them. But we know that there will be a day that when the trumpet sounds and the, and, and the sky shall split and Jesus Christ comes, as Revelation says, and he is riding on the white horse and that horse represents purity and it represents justice and his robe is dipped in blood and from his eyes comes flames of fire and from his mouth comes a sword by which he judges the nations and John is riding this on an island after he's been boiled alive by the Roman government because John knows this, no one gets away with anything in the end. That's the justice of the gospel. That we don't take the law into our own hands, but that we trust ourselves to the one who judges justly. What would it look like? What would it look like 
if a community of people lived that way? And why pray? Pray. Really pray for those who persecute you? Not P-R-E-Y, okay? Which is probably our first response. Pray, prayer, connection with the divine. One preacher says it this way. Prayer changes the prayer. Prayer changes the prayer. You ever prayed for somebody who had done something wrong to you? You ever prayed for somebody who insulted you, shamed you, harmed you, sexually abused you? What happens in that moment? Yes, we can pray angry, and yes, we can ask God for his vengeance, but what we're doing in that very moment, what prayer is first and foremost, is an act of submission. And when we pray, we are not relying upon our own strength, but on the strength of God himself. But what's the basis for all of this? Why, Jesus? Why? He answers it. Look in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing to others? Not even the the Gentiles do the same. If you only hang out with people that are like you, and if you're a Christian and you only greet other Christians, you only hang out with other Christians and you live in a little like goldfish bubble, Jesus is saying, what are you doing? You're no different than the people who don't love Christ. Christians are people who love broadly and they love deep. But what do we do when we do that? He tells us, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect means mature. Maybe you grew up in a denomination where it talked about sinless perfection. It's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that you may be mature because, listen, here it is. When you do this, when you do this, you are no more like my son, Jesus Christ, than in those moments. When you've been wronged, when you have all these rights, when you have all this power, when everything is on, all the chips are in your corner, and you let them go, and you love that person, and you give graciously, and you love unconditionally, and you pray relentlessly. The basis is is that we become a reflection of God. And here's the big idea today. It's this. The kingdom of God is seen most when you love people who hate you. Not when you love people who are like you. The kingdom of God is seen most when you love people, agape, supernatural love, who hate you. Now, how does this apply? It applies to every single person in the room. Husbands and wives, look up here. Look at me. You want your marriage to end tomorrow? Live off retaliation. Anyone? Well, he did this. I mean, gosh. <laughs> He's got something coming today this afternoon. I'll tell you what. One out of every two marriages end in divorce because they operate off of retaliation, not reconciliation. Kids, kids, are you in the room? What do you do when your sister walks in the room, snatches that out of your hand? You give her a Conor McGregor to the right cheek? What do you do? What do you do? 
or never go well. But we love unconditionally. We give graciously. We pray relentlessly. And then for those of us who claim that Jesus is our king, we worship a man who was murdered. You forget that. You forget that. That the only thing that overcame hate in this world. I know no more timely of a passage than where God has us today right now. When I get on the news, when I get on social media, I see everybody hooting and hollering and it's us and them and all of this stuff. But what if the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ is the answer to the world's problems? I believe that it is. So may we today ask ourselves first and foremost... Where have I not applied this in my own life? Have I been operating off retaliation to get mine in this world and defend myself to my husband, to my spouse, to my coworkers, to my kids? Where have you not allowed the love of Christ to rush into your heart? The band's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I want to draw your attention to your bulletin. You have Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 9. And in just a moment before we come to the tables... And we see the body broken and the blood that was shed. Isaiah 53 is the prophecy. 500 years before Jesus Christ ever walks the earth about how God was going to save humanity. And Isaiah describes the death that Jesus Christ would go through. I want you to stand to your feet. Have that bulletin in your hand. I will read a verse and then you will respond with the bold. I will read a verse and you will... Respond with the bold print. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 9. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, as one from whom others hid their faces. And he was despised, and we held him of no account. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we ask that the agape, the supernatural love, would transform our lives. That we would be a people that live based upon the understanding of reconciliation and not retaliation. 
God, I believe that the gospel is true and that the love that you have can change the world, but it starts by changing individuals and individuals in this very room. God, forgive us and have mercy upon us when we are quick to demand our rights rather than to bow our knee at Calvary and to worship the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth and knowing that that love, that love that Dr. King preached about, that Augustine preached about, that Spurgeon thundered, that Athanasius, that all of the great preachers through history thundered, is it is this, that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that who should ever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it is in grace, it is in grace that we find redemptive power. As we come to the table, may we recognize our sin, and may we be affirmed by Your mercy. We pray this in the holy and in the just, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come forward and partake in communion.